Okay, let's... Uh... Now, I'm on. let's go ahead and get started. Um, welcome back. Only thing on the table up front is copies of the schedule, if you don't have copies of the schedule. And the other thing that's on the table up there, if I don't have your email for this group, I would love to have your email for this group. Uh, if I have your email for this group, you received an email from me yesterday, is that right? Or day before yesterday? Um, but if you didn't receive the email, I'd love to have you on that list for this group. Uh, just give it to me up there. Uh, you, you can go ahead. You don't, have, you don't have to keep looking at the Turkish Delight. You can go ahead and eat it. Um, um, several of you told me you'd never had Turkish Delight before. Um, it's not an American thing. It's obviously a Turkish thing, but it's obviously a, an English thing, too. It's made with fruit juice nuts, gelatin, um, the thing that probably doesn't make it a favor for mine is, and this is popular in Israel and Europe, is made, made with rose water, which, yeah, I'm not a big fan of rose water. But uh, anyways, that's Turkish delight uh, that you, you're hearing about quite a bit in the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. So make yourself at home, and if there's, if there's extras on the table, feel free to eat them. Um, I don't want a bunch of Turkish delight left. So uh, if there's any, on, any left on any tables, please feel free to eat it. I'm not a fan of Turkish delight. Uh, ev evidently Edmund was. Evidently a lot of people in England were in the 1950s and before. So uh, let's go back to Narnia. Let's go back to Narnia, chapters 4, 5, and 6. So if you'll turn to chapters 4, 5, and 6, we'll look at what's going on in Narnia, and then we'll pull our Bible out for a few moments. So chapter 4. Chapter 4. You recall last week where we left off. Where we left off is um, Edmund has encountered the white witch. So Edmund is having a conversation with the White Witch, and that's where we pick up at. So, chapter 4. Let me run you through chapter 4, chapter 5, and there's not a lot I want to talk about in chapter 6. Let's talk about chapters 4, 5, and 6. So here, if you look at the beginning of the chapter, you've got Edmund and the Witch uh, having a conversation. Edmund has made his way. He followed Lucy into uh, Narnia. And uh, they're separate because he came in behind Lucy. And he encounters the White Witch, and the White Witch is having a conversation with him. Uh, even the first paragraph is rather interesting. Uh, but what are you, said the Queen again. We saw that last week. Uh, people are whats, or things, to the White Witch. Um, not people. But what are you? Are you an overgrown dwarf that has cut off its beard? Um, it appears she has not encountered a human before. Now, why that's a little interesting to some of us is this. When you read The Magician's Nephew, 
which is the prequel that's written much after this that tells you where all of this world comes from, uh, you see that, yeah, she had encountered. According to the magician's nephew, she had encountered human beings. But what's kind of interesting is when, evidently, obviously, and we know this, when C.S. Lewis wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he did not intend to write anymore. And that's why there are, for those of you that read very, very closely, there will be some inconsistencies. Because uh, when he wrote the line, The Witch and Wardrobe, he assumed this was going to be it. He, he didn't anticipate writing six more volumes. Uh, that's why you see things such as this. Uh, she's pretending as if she's never, or she is acting as if she's never seen a human being. But she has, according to the magician's nephew at the end. So here they are, they're having a conversation. Um, because she's on the lookout, she's on the lookout for sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. So she's trying to figure out if this strange Edmund is, is one of those, a human. And when she discovers that he is, you notice she raises her wand. She's going to do something to him. Uh, he's just literally frozen in terror. Uh, she's going to turn him into stone. You're going to see that later in the story. That's one of the things she does is turn living creatures into stone. But about the time she wants to turn him into to stone, a stone statue, uh, she, uh, she, she stops because she thinks about doing something else. Uh, she remembers the prophecy. The prophecy is that four humans, two daughters of Eve, two sons of Adam, one day will come into Narnia and they will sit on the four thrones of Care Paravel. Well, if you sit on the throne in Narnia, that means she won't be able to do what she's doing uh, as the tyrant who has taken Narnia over. So she remembers that prophecy about these four humans showing up. So she starts having a conversation with Edmund. Um, and she starts enticing Edmund. Of course, uh, it's cold. It's winter. Always winter, never Christmas because of the White Witch. So she uh, invites him up into her, in England it's called a sledge, we call it a sleigh, invites uh, him up into the sleigh with her, uh, then uh, creates a, a, a warm steaming beverage for him to help warm him, uh, magically does that. And then as she continues to entice him, uh, ask what he would like to eat, and she said, Turkish delight. He said, Turkish delight. Again, don't understand Edmund, but he likes Turkish Delight. So uh, she magis magically creates Turkish Delight. And he begins to eat. And the more he eats, the more he wants. Uh, he has never tasted such delicious Turkish Delight. Uh, you learn later in the chapter, this is enchanted Turkish Delight. Because the witch is wanting to do something to and with Edmund. Well, he's eating, he's eating, he's eating, and then she's trying to say to him, um, I want you to go back, bring your siblings back into Narnia, bring them to me, because, uh, again, she remembers the prophecy about the four. She wants to kill the four. Uh, of course, she doesn't tell Edmund she wants to kill them, but she, he just, she just wants him to go and bring them back, not to, you know, she keep it a secret where they're going, 
uh, but to bring him back, bring them back, because she wants to kill all of them. Uh, she says, you know, she's going to make Edmund a prince and then the king of the land. Of course, that's a lie. Just like, for instance, um, um, make him a prince who will become the king when she dies, is what she says. That's a lie because she thinks, and it's true at this point, she will never die because, um, yeah, if the four, four humans don't show up and take Narnia back, she'll keep on living. So she lies about that. You're not surprised, I assume, that the white witch lies. Um, she's lying to him, trying to entice him um, um, into getting the three siblings back. Um, of course, Edmund is Edmund. There's nothing special about them, Queen. Well, bring them in, and I'll, I'll let them serve you. Bring them in, and I'll make them a, a duchesses and a dutch, a duke. Um, bring them in, and um, I'll let them serve you. Again, she's, she's lying. Uh, the whole time she's saying this, he's eating more and more Turkish delight. He's eating it so fast and so quickless, quickly and voluminously. Uh, he, he talks, he forgets, and he starts talking with his mouth full. Uh, it's portrayed well in the movie by Disney and Walden. Uh, he, he's, he's talking with his mouth full, and he forgets to call her, you know, your majesty. But she's okay with it at this point because she's doing what she wants to do. Uh, to Edmund. Um, let me say a few words about this. This is important theology. Here's the theology of the Turkish delight. This is important theology here, particularly in regards to how the enemy operates, particularly in regards to how the enemy operates to tempt, seduce um, Christians uh, into rebellion against God. Um, if you want a really good course on this, again, read the screw tape letters, where the senior devil is telling the junior devil how to seduce uh, Christians away from God, how to seduce Christians uh, into full rebellion against God, how to gradually get them to a place in their life where they're in full rebellion against God and uh, they don't even realize they've made that journey. Um, you know, again... I always feel like I need to apologize, C.S. Lewis. Just enjoy the story. But since you're here and we can talk about the story, I hope that when you see this chapter, um, I'm saying this somewhat facetiously because this may ruin it for you. When I see this chapter, this piece about Turkish delight, yeah, I think about St. Augustine. I think about uh, John Milton, you know, the famous Puritan poet. Both Augustine and Milton taught us a whole lot about how the enemy uses sin to seduce us. Um, Augustine, who was the greatest Christian theologian after Paul before the Protestant Reformation, I think, um, Augustine gave us a lot of wonderful Christian advice. One of the things is that um, if you want to live the spiritual life, you have to order your loves appropriately. Sin is almost always inordinate love. Evil in this world, and you see this with a white witch, evil in this world is always good being perverted into bad. There's really nothing evil about Turkish delight. I don't like it, but there's nothing evil about Turkish delight. Um, but 
evil is good being perverted. That's the way the enemy works. Uh, C.S. Lewis knew that because he knew Augustine well. He wrote a preface, because again, he was a Renaissance medieval literature scholar. Uh, One of his academic works was a preface to Paradise Lost. Uh, So he knew John Milton well, uh, that Puritan poet. So he knows, you know, how we view sin in the Christian tradition. It's inordinate love. It's loves in the wrong order because evil is a good thing that's been perverted into bad. It's okay to love Turkish delight. Don't love Turkish delight to the point that it will lead you to betray your family and lead you into open rebellion against Aslan against God, the emperor beyond the sea. So, uh, uh, you know, most of us never wake up and say, I think I'm going to be a full-blown, evil, non-Christian in rebellion against God today. I think I'll become that today. None of us ever do that. We looked at that quote last week about how, the uh, from, from the enemy's point of view, the easiest path for them to seduce us into hell is the gradual path. So, yeah, take those good things and allow those good things to become inordinate loves in our life. Love of nation is good. Don't put it before love of God. Love of family is good. Don't put it before love of God. Love of Turkish delight is fine. Don't put it before God. So uh, there's great Christian theology going on here. Uh, about this Turkish delight and the way the, um, uh, the enemy lies, the way the enemy uses good things uh, to get you to love good things inappropriately or inordinately. Uh, the white witch knows all that stuff. Maybe she's been taught by screw tape. The white witch knows all this stuff. The white witch knows how, how to seduce uh, Edmund. And Edmund was all, already... S- slightly on the path. Remember, you know, Edmund has not been a good character for us so far. He's not been a bad character. He's just been, to use C.S. Lewis's words, it's going to come a little later, he's been a nasty character. And he's getting nastier by the minute because he's on this gradual path into rebellion against uh, Aslan. He's on this gradual path into betraying uh, even his family. And the queen knows exactly what she's doing. Edmund doesn't know what, what she's doing. The only thing he knows is he wants more Turkish delight. And she says, you know, I, I can't give you any more here. Well, she just mirag- mirag- magically made it appear. Miraculously, magically made it appear. So she could give him some more right there. But she says, go get your siblings. Don't tell them what you're doing. Bring them to me. And I'll give you all the Turkish delight that you want in addition to making you a prince and then a king. Again, she is counterfeiting Aslan. You know, we are told in the Bibles, in the Bible that one day we will rule. We will reign. We will sit on the thrones uh, as, as we participate in uh, the Messiah's rule of all creation. That's part of what the New Testament promises. Uh, we are royalty. And we're going to get to live eternally, eternally as royalty. We will, you know, you know the hymn, we will cast our crowns before him. But we do get the crowns. 
that we cast before him. Um, so, it's, again, that's a valid promise. We're going to live eternally and somewhat as royalty. Here's the queen sort of counterfeiting Aslan. You know, do what I want. I'll make you a prince, and then when I die, which she doesn't think she will ever, I'll make you a king. So she's lying. She's counterfeiting some of the good things that Aslan has promised. And uh, she's able to do all this because the only thing... Um, Edmund wants this point is more Turkish delight. Look at the top of page 41 in my edition. Please, please, said Edmund suddenly. Please, couldn't I have just one piece of Turkish delight to eat on the way home? I mean, he's serious about this Turkish delight. But, um, you know, you may think it's rather foolish, but we need to evaluate our own lives. We have our own forms of Turkish delight that we will do silly, stupid, ridiculous, rebellious, unchristian things for. Um, that's why one time, you know, I think I mentioned it to you last week, Screwtape tells Wormwood, his nephew, the junior devil, you know, don't, don't worry about tempting the Christians with alcohol if simple playing cards would work. <laughs> you know, I mean, whatever can pull them away whatever can uh, become an inordinate love in their lives. Yeah, we need to be very careful about our passions. Uh, God loves passion. God created passion in the human being. Um, we just need to be passionate about the right things and be less passionate about other things. C.S. Lewis actually, because he had read Augustine, he had read John Milton, he knew Christian theology, he wrote an essay. He wrote a lot of wonderful essays, by the way. He wrote an essay entitled First and Second Things. Yeah, remember what's second, or third, or fourth, or fifth. Don't ever let them squeeze the way in front of what's first in life. Yeah, don't worry about alcohol if simple playing cards can do it. So, uh, yeah, you, you see it functioning here with the white witch. Turkish delight's a good thing. She is perverting it into a bad thing. Um, Edna thinks it's a good thing. Perverting it into a bad thing. She's telling him lies. Um, she is getting him further down the road, little bit by little bit, of being a nastier and nastier person. You see that happening here in, um, in chapter 4. Um, well, eventually, after the queen has done her work, the false queen of Narnia, the white witch, has done her work, she speeds off on her sledge with her evil dwarf and reindeer. Um, and about the time she speeds off, Lucy shows up. Uh, so at the bottom of page 41, um, uh, oh, Edmund, she cried, you, you've got in too. Isn't it wonderful? And now, all right, Edmund said, I see you were right, and it's a magic wardrobe after all. I'll, I'll say I'm sorry if you like, but where on earth have you been all this time? I've been looking for you everywhere. A lie. He's getting a little bit further along the path. He hasn't been looking for her. He's been doing something else. He's been enjoying his Turkish delight with the white witch. Um, then Lucy says, if I'd known you had gotten in, I'd have waited for you, said Lucy, who was too happy and excited to notice how snappishly Edmund spoke or how flushed or strange his face was. Yeah, she, he's, he's progressing down the path. 
Uh, but anyway, she's been with the phone. Um, she says the phone mentioned, the phone's okay. The phone has not been hurt yet by the White Witch for, uh, you know, uh, not capturing Lucy in her first journey into Narnia. Um, and then the, that's when Edmund says, the White Witch, said Edmund, who's she? And uh, look at look at Lucy's description of the White Witch. She is a perfectly terrible person. Well, Edmund sort of enjoyed her. She's a perfectly terrible person, said Lucy. She calls herself the Queen of Narnia, though she has no right to be queen at all. And all the fauns and dryads and naiads and dwarfs and animals, at least all the good ones, simply hate her. And she can turn people into stone. That's why she started to do with Edmund. And do all kinds of horrible things. And she has made a and she has made a magic so that it is always winter in Narnia. Always winter, but it never gets to Christmas. And she drives about on a sledge, sleigh, drawn by reindeer, with her wand in her hand and crown on her head. Edmund was already feeling uncomfortable from having eaten too many sweets. Yeah. There's another sermon on the nature of sin. Eating uncomfortable, uncomfortable, she eating too many sweets. And when she, when he heard that the lady he had made friends with was a dangerous witch, he felt even more uncomfortable. But still, he still wanted to taste that Turkish delight again more than he wanted anything else. Some people want to watch Super Bowl more than they want anything else. <laughs> Nothing wrong with Super Bowl. Some people want to play golf more than anything else. Nothing wrong with golf. Uh, you got to order your loves appropriately. Or you do stuff foolish like Edmund, and you find yourself in a place you really didn't overtly choose. Anyway, so um, they head back. They head back. And if you notice on the last page... Uh, in my edition, probably the same as yours, second paragraph from the top on page 43, last page of this chapter, about halfway through the paragraph, uh, your narrator says, he, Edmund, was already more than half on the side of the witch. He didn't know that. But gradually, little by little, he's on the journey. Um, anyway, so they decide to go get the others. So, chapter 5. They're back through the wardrobe. They're back in the professor's house. Um, this is one of my favorite portrayals of the professor. You're going to learn a lot about this professor later, particularly in The Magician's Nephew. Um, if you notice on the first page of Chapter 5, um, what the narrator says at the bottom of the page, and now we come, the narrator says, it's one of the nastiest things in this story. I want you to notice, or maybe you don't know this, don't mean to spoil it, but it's fine. The White Witch is going to kill Aslan at one point. Sort of the crucifixion in the story. The White Witch is going to kill Aslan at one point. But even this right here is one of the nastiest things in the story, he says. Now we come to one of the nastiest things in the story. And if you just didn't read it or didn't know what was going on, it'd be interesting for you to start thinking about what, what would be for C.S. Lewis, one of the nastiest things in the story. Keep reading the paragraph. Up to that moment, Edmund had been feeling sick and sulky and annoyed with Lucy for being right. You know any of those people in your world? Again, this is Edmund. 
he's annoyed that you know he's a he, instead of enjoying Narnia he's annoyed that she was right that it existed and annoyed with Lucifer being right but he hadn't made up his mind what to do when Peter suddenly asked him the question he decided all at once to do the meanest and most spiteful thing most spiteful thing he could think of he decided to let Lucy down. You probably wouldn't define that as the meanest and most spiteful thing uh, Lucy could do. One of the nastiest things in the story. C.S. Lewis does, though. Again, uh, how Edmund treats Lucy is um, one of the nastiest things in the story at this point. Because you know how the story goes on. He's, he, he's, he acts like Lucy's making all this up. Even though he's been in Narnia... Uh, in front of Susan and Peter, he just acts like, yeah, she's making it all up. There's nothing real about Narnia. And, of course, that devastates Lucy. So on the second page of Chapter 5, it says, Edmund, who was becoming a nastier person ever minute, um, yeah, just, just denied he had been in Narnia, denied Narnia was real, and just kind of went on saying, yeah, Lucy's... Lucy's full of nonsense, and of course that devastates Lucy. So they they start. Edmund knows better, but they start. Uh, Peter and Susan start worrying about Lucy at this point. Lucy's the youngest. Lucy's the character we like best. Lucy's female, but she's going to become the leader in the next chapter. But they're worrying about Lucy at this point. They they. Um, they're concerned, as you see at the bottom of page 45, that she is going queer in the head or else turning into a most frightful liar. They're concerned. So, I love this section. They finally go and have a chat with the professor. I love the professor. Other than the fact he's like 50-some years old and he's depicted as a really old man. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the picture in this chapter where Pauline Baines drew a picture of him, you know, sitting in the chair beside uh, Peter and Susan. Yeah, he looks like a really old man. Yeah, 50-something, you know, 50's the new 30, like 70's the new um, um, 50. But yeah, I guess the 1950's, 50-something was really old. Other than that, I really like this professor. Um, again, this professor, and we're going to look at this episode with this professor. This professor, they, they go to ask the professor because they're worried about Lucy. They're afraid he'll call um, their parents back in London, Mama back in London, and talk about how Lucy's becoming, and they'll all and things won't end well, and it'll worry Mama back in London. So they go talk to the professor with their concerns about Lucy. Lucy's becoming queer in the head. She's either lying or she's going mad or anyway they go talk to the professor now what you don't know yet what you don't know yet you'll learn in the magician's nephew in the prequel the professor has already been in narnia the professor was the first to go to narnia one of the first to go to narnia um the professor is the reason because of what he did when he was a kid, the professor is the reason the white witch is in Narnia. That's why there's wardrobes in the professor's house. Um, you'll learn all this stuff in the prequel. 
But of course, C.S. Lewis hasn't written the prequel yet, so I'm not sure he knows that. And you're not supposed to know that. But since we're going to read The Magician's Nephew, um, you may find this conversation even a little bit more interesting that the professor's getting ready to have. The professor is um, Diggory Kirk. By the way, the word Kirk is the Scottish word for church, if you didn't know that. Uh, the professor is Diggory Kirk as an old man. You're going to meet Diggory as a young man in The Magician's Nephew when he goes to Narnia. Um, but um, that's who the professor is. Uh, so they go talk to the professor. I love this. Look on page, in my edition, about four pages into this chapter. Uh, my edition, page 47. They, they, they go to the professor, and they um, start talking about this unbelievable story. Um, they start sharing this unbelievable story with the professor. And start with me where the professor says, how do you know that your sister's story is not true? Now, another character behind this character is um, C.S. Lewis's favorite teacher growing up, Kirkpatrick, the old knock, the most purely rational person, C.S. Lewis said, he ever met who uh, prepared C.S. Lewis to go to Oxford as a student and to succeed at Oxford as a student. So uh, Kirkpatrick was um, um, a huge influence in C.S. Lewis. Uh, this professor also is sort of based on Kirkpatrick. Kirkpatrick was purely logical. He used the so Socratic method to teach C.S. Lewis. Uh, he's going, the professor here is going to use the Socratic method with these children. The Socratic method is just asking questions to get you to think. The Socratic method is just asking you questions to get you to perhaps evaluate your ideas, evaluate what you think you know. Uh, the Socratic method and the professor here will invite the children to step beyond, step beyond their unexamined opinions. Um, Notice how he does it. So back to, how do you know that your sister's story not true? That's probably not what Peter and Susan expected from the professor. They probably thought, well, yeah, I'm, I'm concerned about Lucy too. All this wardrobe, mystical, new, strange world. But he says, how do you know that your sister's story's not true? Oh, but, began Susan, and then stopped. Anyone could see from the old man's face that he was perfectly serious. Then Susan pulled herself together and said, but Edmund said they had only been pretending. That is a point, said the professor, which certainly deserves consideration, very careful consideration. For instance, if you will excuse me for asking the question, does your experience lead you to regard your brother, Edmund, or your sister, Lucy, as the more reliable? I mean, which is the more truthful? Well, we know the answer to that one. That's the funny thing about it, sir, said Peter. Up until now, I'd have said Lucy every time. And what do you think, my dear, said the professor, turning to Susan. Well, said Susan, in general, I'd say the same as Peter. But this could not be true. All this about the wood and the phone, that is more than I know, says the professor. 
which is interesting because we we're going to read the magician's nephew, but he's just trying to point out these children. They are declaring things to be true. That's more than they know. That is more than I know, says the professor, and a charge of lying against someone whom you have always found truthful is a very serious thing, a very serious thing indeed. We we were afraid it mightn't even be lying, said Susan. We thought there might be something wrong with Lucy. Madness, you mean, said the professor quite coolly. Oh, you can take your you can make your minds easy about that one. One only has to look at her and talk to her to see that she's not mad. But then said Lucy and stopped. She had never dreamed that a grown-up would talk like the professor. And she didn't know what to think. And I love this next paragraph. Logic. Logic, said the professor half to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? I am so very, very, very grateful, becoming more so every day, that I received a classical education. And when I went to undergraduate school, I was in a college where everybody had to take logic. Because we're in one of the most illogical pieces of human history ever existed. I learned as an undergraduate, an ad hominem argument is always fallacious. And our culture is eat up with ad hominem arguments. You can't turn the news on without seeing the flood of ad hominem arguments. Now, you might not have been forced to take logic, so you might not know what an ad hominem argument is. Ad hominem is Latin for against the man. So an ad hominem argument is this. I can't debate your idea. I can't debate what you're saying. So what do I do? I attack you as a person. Let that sink in for just a moment. I want to please plead with you. Be on the lookout for ad hominem arguments where you ignore the issue, you ignore the discussion, you ignore the debate, just attack the person. And if you attack the person and can somehow um, disqualify the person, then maybe theoretically that disqualifies the argument. That's an ad hominem argument. Always by nature fallacious yeah um we've had we have some politicians that's the only argument they know how to make is that harm the argument they won't talk about the issue they'll attack the person i'm so glad i was forced to take logic uh you know i wish everybody was forced to take logic i was because i was forced to take logic um c.s lewis had a classical education Thanks to Kirkpatrick, because I was forced to take logic, um, that also teaches me that an argument from silence is always probably a fallacious argument. So what is an argument from silence? For somebody to say, well, Jesus never said anything about blank, so then I can believe what I want to about it. That's an argument from silence. I'll let you fill in the blanks. That's done all the time. You know, Jesus never said, don't cheat on your taxes, so go for it. Well, no, he didn't talk about taxes. Well, he did talk about taxes, by the way. Pay your taxes. That's not a good argument. Um, Jesus never talked about using the Internet. 
But that doesn't mean we can't use Jesus to decide how we use the Internet or not. That's why that's an argument from silence. Anytime you hear somebody making an argument from silence, beware. Beware. Anyway, I could go on. I had a whole semester of logic. Um, I wish everybody had to take logic in this culture. They would know how to think, and they wouldn't be sucked in by sound bites. They wouldn't be sucked in by 30-second commercials if they could just be logical. So the professor says, logic. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? And if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis had a horrible experience with schools in England until he went to Oxford. Um, if you read C.S. Lewis's um, autobiography, Surprised by Joy, which just takes his life up to his conversion, um, there are chapters about those horrible schools he attended as a kid. He sort of rushes past World War One, in which he was a soldier, but he talks a lot about those horrible schools in which he was a kid. And one of the things you're going to learn is Edmund, and later in the Chronicles, Eustace. They're the way they are because of the schools they went to. They were the kind of schools that didn't teach, te didn't teach logic. Anyway, uh, why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. And if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, this is going to remind you of something else C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. He says to Susan and Peter concerning Lucy, there are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she's crazy, she's mad, or she's telling the truth. Um, you probably remember one of the things C.S. Lewis is most famous for writing is in, in Mere Christianity, he says, when you consider Jesus, he's either a liar or a lunatic, or he is who he says he is. What is not an option is he was just a great moral teacher. That's not an option. Because to say he's a great moral teacher, and only a great moral teacher, you've lost sight of the fact that he kept sort of saying over and over, he's equal with God. If I were to walk in next Wednesday and tell you I'm equal with God, don't believe anything else I tell you. Don't say he's a great moral teacher. He's just a little touched in the brain. But he's a great moral teacher. I'm going to follow him because he's a great moral teacher. You know, I really like his Sermon on the Mount, but he's a lunatic about everything else he says. Um, so that's why C.S. Lewis said either he's a liar or a lunatic because he made audacious claims. He has the right to forgive sins. He has the right to control nature. He's equal with God. Either he's lying or he's a lunatic or he's who he says he is. The Socratic method says there's not another option out there. You can't say, well, yeah, he lies a lot, he's a lunatic, but he's a great moral teacher. You can't do that. So, uh, yeah, Lewis was famous for that argument with Jesus. So, uh, yeah, either, either Lucy is going crazy, she's lying, or maybe there's something to what she says. This is not what Peter and Susan expected from their professor. Either your sister is telling lies or she is mad or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies. It is obvious that she is not mad for the moment then, and unless further evidence shows up, we must assume that she's telling the truth. 
Susan looked at him very hard and was quite sure from the expression on his face that he was not making fun of them. But how could it be true, sir, said Peter. Why do you say that, said the professor? Well, for one thing, if it was real, why doesn't everyone find this country every time they go through the wardrobe? Because you can't control the spiritual world. You can't even control the wardrobe. That's my editorial. Why can't everyone find this country every time they go to the wardrobe? I mean, there was nothing there when we looked in. Even Lucy didn't pretend there was. What has that to do with it, says the professor? Be aware of basing everything on your limited experience. Well, my best friend is blank, so therefore it's got to be wonderful. Be beware of basing everything on your limited experience. Their limited experiences of wardrobe is that when they went in it and they knocked on it, there was a bag to it. There was no wild country in there. Beware of basing everything on your limited experience. Again, why don't they teach logic in these schools? What has that to do with it? Well, sir, if, if things are real, they're there all the time. Are they? Said the professor. Are they, said the professor. For instance, sometimes when you take communion, sometimes it's the body and blood of Christ, sometimes it's bread and juice. That's up to you. It's not necessarily real all the time. That doesn't mean it's not real some of the time. There may be some other things at play there. Are they, said the professor, and Peter did not know quite what to say. He sure didn't. But there was no time, said Lucy, that said Lucy. There was no time, said Susan. Lucy had no time to, to have gone anywhere, even if there was such a place. She came running after us the very moment we were out of the room. It was less than a minute. She pretended to have been away for hours. That is the very thing that makes her story so likely to be true, says the professor. Now, again, remember, he's been there. Um, if there really is a door in this house that leads to some other world, and, and I should warn you that this is a very strange house, and even I don't know, and even I know very little about it. If I say she has got into another world, I should not at all be surprised to find that the other world has a separate time of its own. Again, you can't, you can't evaluate the other world by your limited experience in this world. Because your experience of time here. That doesn't mean you're an expert at evaluating time in the other world. Um, I should not be surprised at all to find that the other world had a separate time of its own so that however long you stayed there, it would never take up any of our time. On the other hand, I don't think many girls of her age would invent that idea for themselves. If she had been pretending, she would have hidden for a reasonable time before coming out and telling her story. But do you really mean, sir, said Peter, that... There could be other worlds all over the place, just around the corner like that. Nothing is more probable, said the professor, taking off his spectacles and beginning to polish them while he muttered to himself, I wonder what do what they do teach them at these schools. But what are we to do, said Susan. She felt that the conversation was beginning to get off the point. My dear young lady, said the professor, suddenly looking up with a very sharp expression at both of them, there is one plan that no one has yet suggested and which is well worth trying. What's that, said Susan? We might all try minding our own business, said he. And that was the end of the conversation. 
Um, so the story continues that people from all over England would come visit this strange house the professor lived in. It's like a museum. They would come visit the strange house, and Mrs. McCready, the housekeeper, didn't like children. Uh, that you can really tell that in the movie version. She didn't like children. So uh, when she's there showing visitors or guests around this strange house, stay out of Mrs. McCready's way. So there, there comes a day where she's uh, showing visitors around the strange house, and they're trying to stay out of the way, and they're running from room to room, and Mrs. McCready and the guests just keep kind of following her. So they end up back in the room where the wardrobe is, and I hope toward the end of this chapter you didn't miss that phrase that said, as they were running away from Miss McCready room to room, it was as if some magic in the house had come to life and was chasing them into Narnia. Remember what I said about rain, weather being providential? Yeah, there's some power in the house chasing them back into Narnia. So they all go in the wardrobe. And, of course, the last verse in chapter, and the last verse, the last sentence in uh, chapter 6, when you, they will get in the wardrobe, and, of course, every sensible person do, knows that you should never shut yourself up in a wardrobe. Yeah, five times he reminds them of that. He's afraid of children around the world getting stuck in wardrobes. But anyway, so they're back in the wardrobe. Anyway, chapter 6. They're in the wardrobe, all four of them now. And all of a sudden, it starts feeling cold. It starts feeling damp. They start feeling trees. And um, it's so cold, they put coats on that are much bigger than they are. That makes them feel like uh, royal. they're wearing royal robes. And... Um, with these big coats, it's too big for them. Some of us see a symbol of baptism here. Baptism's the beginning of the journey. It's something you put on that you spend the rest of your life growing into. And it symbolizes, claims us, names us as royalty. And we can wear them as we become explorers. Notice, notice what Lucy says, as they became explorers in a new world. After baptism, here, we start becoming explorers in a new world. After baptism, we enter into a life where we're learning about this new land, this new world. Anyway, so um, uh, there they are in Narnia, and they come out of the wardrobe, and Lucy is the leader. They sort of elect her the leader. You know, some people think C.S. Lewis is a misogynist, anti-female. They should read this stuff. This is written in the 50s. Lucy, the young girl, is the leader. Notice as um, the reason they elect Lucy the leaders as they're walking in the woods. Poor old Edmund says, I say, oughtn't we to be bearing a bit more to the left? That is, if we're aiming for the lamppost. As soon as he says that, what does that mean to the others? He has been there before. Well, yeah, they all jump on him then because they realize he is beastly. And again, every time C.S. Lewis talks about humans being beastly, he's letting you know the humans are beastly, not the animals in Narnia. The humans are the real beast in this story. Anyway, so they're in, they're in Narnia. They go to Tumnus's house. They discover that the phone, Mr. Tumnus, has been arrested by the white witch. 
they you learn when you, when they read the poster uh, the official notice, the warrant that was left there at the house, that her name is Jadis. You learn more about that in The Magician's Nephew. Um, so they, they, they realize that uh, they need to go and hunt, hunt, hunt Mr. Fawn. He's probably in trouble. They have to rescue him. So they start heading out to um, find Mr. Fawn. And a robin, a red robin, shows up. And this red robin starts leading them. They realize this red robin is leading them. They all except Edmund realize that. Edmund, he's opposed to everything. But they realize this red robin is trying to lead them somewhere. Every time this red robin would go a little further and land on a, a limb, Lewis tells you the limb would shake, some snow would fall off the limb. So we've discussed for, since the 50s, maybe this red robin that shows up is the first bird of the coming spring, the first bird of the coming fall of this winter. Uh, something's going to start happening now in Narnia. These four, the prophecy, these four in Narnia, so they're led uh, by, this, by this bird. And um, like I said last week, C.S. Lewis usually kind of starts the next chapter and stops this chapter. So they're being led by the robin, the first, perhaps the first bird of spring, that's knocking some snow off the limbs, and um, they're going to follow, and they're going to end up with a great visit with the beavers, real beavers, literal beavers who talk. And I love the next chapter, because you and they, for the first time, because you should not have read Magician Nephew yet, you and they, for the first time, will be introduced to Aslan. And so my favorite lines from all the Chronicles occurs next week. So just a couple of Bible verses. You can put the book aside and turn to um, turn turn to the book of Proverbs in your Bible. Yeah, I'm still stuck on Turkish delight. Please don't leave me Turkish delight. Um, so find the extra Turkish delight needed in the room. Um, turn for, to start with, turn to Proverbs chapter 9. You know, Billy Graham used to read a chapter of Proverbs every morning. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs. Um, we would be a wiser people. We would know more wisdom. We might not even have to take logic if we'd read and study the book of Proverbs. But if you just look at the book of Proverbs, turn to chapter 9 to start with. I'm going to show you a couple of Proverbs. If you look at chapter 9 of the book of Proverbs, uh, just a couple of verses. Think about how the white witch is using Turkish delight. Uh, chapter 9, verses 17 and 18. Notice what it says, the last two verses of that chapter. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, and her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Yeah. Um, it's a long story, but one of the things that led to my profession of faith at age nine, long story, I'll tell it one day, is I got caught with two of my friends stealing apples out of someone's apple tree. Actually, we weren't smart enough to steal the apples. We were stupid. Sin does that to you. We stole, we were taking the apples, but for fun, we were throwing them back at the roof of the old lady's house. <laughs> And we didn't realize the old lady's young daughter was visiting. 
who almost outrun us, and we had bicycles. <laughs> Another story. But, yeah, those apples, we didn't, they, they would have been sweet had we eaten them, but we didn't even eat them. We threw them back at the house. Yeah, stolen bread is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Go to chapter 20, another like verse, another like proverb. There's several things repeated. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 17, another proverb. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. Hmm. Now, go to the New Testament. Go to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, uh, this past week I taught or preached on Sunday morning from uh, the great chapter, the, the, the Hall of Fame, chapter 11 of Hebrews, where the author looks at all those great saints from the Old Testament. Um, yeah, there's a lot of the great saints of the Old Testament listed in Hebrews. I want you to just notice something he says as he speaks about Moses. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews sounds like it should be an Old Testament, but it's a New Testament. Uh, look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. Uh, he's, he's giving you all these saints, and he says here, as he starts talking about Moses, by faith. And he mentions those two words over and over again in this chapter. By faith, by faith, by faith. These people can do wonderful things. By faith. Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, was Moses when, when he was grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sometimes you have to walk away from the Turkish delight to do what God's calling you to do. And you know the story. Moses decided to side with his people rather than live as a son of Pharaoh. Um, So he, he chose to side with his people rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ. In other words, he considered suffering for what was right for God. Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking forward, he was looking to the reward. By faith, next verse 27, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he, Moses, endured as seeing him who is invisible. So Moses could see things other people couldn't see, could see a God that others couldn't see, could see a world that belonged to a God that others couldn't see, and he was willing to walk away from the pleasures of Egypt. Um, I guess Egyptian delight. He was willing to walk away from Egyptian delight to do what was right. So, yeah, please help me get rid of the Turkish delight. Let me have a brief prayer, and I'm finished. God, thank you for this faithful group. Thank you for the ways that you are growing us up in the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the ways that you're giving us eyes healed by your grace to see you, to see your world around us. Lord, we know that we are citizens of another kingdom. May we always live as if we're citizens of another kingdom. In the name of Jesus Christ, our only Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.